as you're turning to Joshua chapter 20, there's something I want you to consider in your own head. What things about either your current household, the current house you live in, your family you're a part of, uh, or the household you grew up in potentially made it unique? What made it different? What made it unique or distinct? What sorts of things do you remember? Maybe it's decorations that were on the walls, or maybe it's the music that was played in your home. Things that nobody else had and things that you notice are a little different when you walk into other homes. Maybe it's your weekly routine, the things you prioritized, having dinner together or going to church on Sunday or different activities. Maybe it's the way you spoke to one another, the terminology you use, the language you use, the appropriateness or lack of appropriateness with which you addressed each other. Maybe it's family trips or vacations, things that were always on the calendar that you knew were a part of your family and what you did. Or as we're coming up on the holidays, maybe it's a holiday tradition, an activity that on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, something your family always did and you always found it strange that other families didn't do something just like that. What things made your household, make your household today unique, distinct from others? Now, I want you to ask a follow-up question. In light of those things that you have in your mind, what either do those things now or did those things say about what your family values? What did those unique attributes of your family tell you was important to your family? In what ways did your routines and rhythms speak to what was valuable or what is valuable to your home, to your household, to your family? Maybe it's the decorations and music. Maybe the things you have on the wall are indicative of a significant religious or cultural heritage that your family is unique because of. In the rhythms of your family, maybe it's setting priorities and saying what things are important to us, which things do we always make time for, such as family dinner or activities, different things like that. The way we speak in our household generally portrays a natural affinity toward either truth-telling or being tactful. You may err on either side of that spectrum. The trips and vacations we plan may be oriented around our desire for some sort of experience, or maybe you're a museum family that likes culture, or maybe you just like to veg out and relax on vacation. And as always, I think the holidays indicate what and who we want to remember in life. Who we spend our time with, what we spend our time doing around the holidays has a tendency to ingrain itself into our heads so that those are the things we remember years down the road. Every household has significant, discernible markers, things that make them unique in this world. And I would add that every new household has the opportunity to establish new ones as well. Do you recall the first time you moved out of your parents' house? And don't worry, it'll happen, kids. At some point, you'll move out of your parents' house, and you'll have the opportunity to say, what do I want my household to be about? What is going to be important to us? What is going to be priority to us? Am I going to get up at 6 o'clock every morning? Am I going to establish rhythms of going to church and reading my Bible and activities like that? Or am I just going to let whatever happens, happens? Every household has things that make it unique. And all of those things indicate what is important to that household, to that home. As we find ourselves in Joshua 20 and 21 this morning, we find these texts a little bit strange, but I think that's precisely the theme of what God is doing here in these two chapters for the nation of Israel, for the household of Israel. God has established Israel in the promised land. 
And now he sets about creating how this new people, how this new nation, how this new family will distinguish itself from the nations that were there before, from the peoples that surround them. What will be important to this household, to this family? What will mark it off as distinct and different? He declares that both justice and proper worship of him will be priorities in this home. And he does so in kind of a strange way to us by allocating some additional cities to some particular groups. We're going to see that here in just a moment, but before we get into that and wrestle with this question of what is a priority in the household of God, I want us to pause and I want us to pray and ask for God's guidance. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the chasing seasons, for the reminder that you are sovereign and in control. No matter what man tries to do to cope with the snow, we know the snow comes from you. And you can upset our plans and our schemes and our schedules at any time. And Lord, that is challenging when it's trying to get here on Sunday morning, but it's also an incredible reminder of your provision and how you're in control of everything. So Lord, we praise you for that this morning. And we recognize that just as you are the Lord of the snow and the storehouses of heaven, you are also the Lord of your word. You are the Lord of this church. And Father, anything we would seek to do apart from you would be in vain. So Lord, as we wrestle with these tricky passages, with these challenging texts, we pray that you would guide and direct our conversation. Lord, speak through me, make it profitable for your people, and make it glorifying to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, today we begin to wind down our study of the book of Joshua. We come into the closing few chapters here after spending a number of weeks in this incredible book. As we've mentioned repeatedly, the first five chapters relay the idea of crossing into or passing over into the land as God prepares his people for the task he's giving them. From there, they move into the land, they begin the battle portion of the book of Joshua as God again and again proves himself faithful to cause the people of Israel to defeat foes they never should have conquered. Now we've found ourselves in this sticky part of the book, the allotment of the land, as God distributes these cities to these people, a reminder of his promise and his provision to his people. And while these two chapters, 20 and 21, are still technically a part of this allotment of the land, this third section, they also function as a transition in the story of Joshua. They show us what God prioritizes and what he wants his people to prioritize in their new life in the promised land. And to do this, God commands these two final unique allotments of the land to make them nationally distinct, to make them culturally distinct, to make them set apart from the people around them. He sections off these cities of refuge. That's what chapter 20 is all about. And then chapter 21 is the allotment of the cities for the Levites, the Levitical priesthood. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But God is establishing this foundation. He's saying, what is going to be important to my people now that they're in the promised land? What things are going to be unique about them? We learn first through these cities of refuge that God prescribes justice for his people. God prescribes justice for his people. We see this in chapter 20. Now, this situation is a little bit culturally informed. So I want to do a little bit of background work. We're going to be flipping back and forth between a text in our time together this morning. So don't lose me, okay, as we walk back and forth. I'm going to ask you to keep a finger in one text while we flip to the other text a few times here. But he starts off in chapter 20 by explaining the need for these cities of refuge. Look at verse 1 in chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, 
that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. And we go, what? What, what, what are we talking about here? What's going on? Both Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, the section we just read a moment ago, help explain what's going on in this text. Since we already read Deuteronomy 19, I don't have time to cover both of these. We're going to be jumping back and forth between this text and Numbers 35. Okay? So here real briefly, keep your finger in Joshua 20 and 21 and flip to the left a couple of books in your Bible to Numbers chapter 35. Numbers chapter 35 is where the initial commands related to these cities of refuge come up. Now, you probably found yourself, as you were flipping to that text, Numbers chapter 35, you found yourself saying, what is he talking about with this avenger of blood? It came up in Deuteronomy 19, it comes up here in Joshua 20. What is going on with that? Let me read briefly from Numbers 35, because this uses that terminology. Numbers 35, verse 16. Prior to that, he's explained how there will be these cities of refuge, and how that's where people will run. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but in, chapter, or in verse 16, he helps explain how that's different than another scenario. Look at verse 16. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool so that he would cause death, and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool so that he could cause death, and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. What he's saying is if there's a murder that takes place and somebody takes a weapon and kills another person, that's clearly a murderer. Now look back at verse 19. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death when he meets him. He shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. God is here prescribing a form of justice for his people. He's helping people understand that if there is a murder that takes place and somebody kills his brother because we are made in God's image, that person's life is forfeit. And this avenger of blood is the one who would pursue that individual who would carry out that justice once he's been convicted of murder. Everybody following with me here so far? Because then to prevent that from happening inappropriately... God lays out the due process for discovering this. He says, not everyone is committing murder. Sometimes it happens accidentally. Look at verse 3 through 6 in Joshua 20. So flip back to Joshua 20. So we have to recognize that God is establishing this method for seeing people brought to justice for murder. He says that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes that death is going to be accidental. Look back at verse 3 of chapter 20 in Joshua that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. See what he's doing here? He's saying sometimes the murderer deserves justice. Other times it was an accidental thing. It didn't occur on purpose. There's some examples he brings up. In Deuteronomy 19, it's the idea of going out to chop down a tree and the axe head flies off of your axe and hits your person who's working next to you Nothing you could do about it, right? It's an accidental death. Or in Numbers 35, he talks about you're trying to remove a rock from your field and that rock rolls down and it hits somebody and it kills them. You didn't do it on purpose. You didn't seek to try and see that person killed. There's some sort of accidental death that occurs. Then he says, for that person, there is sanctuary. They are to flee to a city of refuge. Look at verse 4. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. 
Then they shall take him to the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. Okay? See that? So there's an accidental death that occurs. It wasn't intentional. It didn't happen on purpose. And this person who's committed that act is supposed to flee to this city for sanctuary. We'll see in just a moment that the locations of these cities are really critical. I'm going to throw a map up here on the board in just a moment here, and we're going to talk about how that's specifically designed so that every part of Israel is about a day's journey from one of these cities. So there's always refuge available in the event of this accidental death. And then protection is provided. Look at verse 5. And if the avenger of blood, remember the one seeking justice, pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. Everybody's following with me, right? This is how this goes, right? And it's interesting to note that if you read extra biblical resources, you actually learn that there was typically food and lodging provided in these cities to be prepared for someone who would flee in this eventuality. So they have this event occur, they flee to this city, and they have protection in this city until justice can take place. Look at verse 6. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. Basically, the way it works out is very similar to kind of like a jury by the trial or a trial of your peers, right? Person comes, he makes his case to the elders, he seeks refuge until that trial can basically take place. If he's found to be guilty of murdering the person with intent, the avenger of blood is allowed to kill him, right? If he is found innocent, he is to remain in the city protected. There's still a consequence. He has to remain in the city, but he's protected. Until the death of the high priest. When the death of the high priest occurs, he can go back to his own hometown. Okay, and this whole process, and we go, this is really bizarre. What is this talking about? This whole process is designed to prevent the sort of premature indictment, conviction, and sentencing of someone. That was very common in the day. Or if somebody was murdered, nobody cared why you did it. Nobody cared if it was on purpose. They would come and they would kill you, and we'd get a Hatfields and McCoys sort of situation going on, right? Everybody knows who the Hatfields and McCoys are? Or they're killing each other? And you know, okay, we're all up to speed on that. It's meant to prevent that sort of thing from taking place because that's the natural indication of the human heart, right? We don't necessarily seek justice. We seek revenge. We want to get even when we're hurt or when someone is hurt around us. I think that's probably a reminder we need as well. It's important to note that here, he lays out a systematic process for evaluating someone's guilt. I think that would be worth noting for us in today's social media culture where people are tried and convicted and indicted all online before any of the truth ever comes out. We so quickly rush to judgment thinking we have all the facts. And God reminds them, hey, there's a process here. You need to walk through this process. You need to understand what's actually going on. But the broader principle at play in this text is that God is calling his people to be culturally and legally unique. He's saying, I want you to operate by a different set of values than the rest of the world. I want you to operate by a different set of principles than the people around you. And we miss this. We tend to lose sight of this because it feels strange to us. Because this sort of a process for evaluating someone's guilt feels very natural to us, does it not? We have due process in the Western world. We have innocent until proven guilty. We have means and methods for evaluating whether somebody is guilty or whether somebody is innocent. But most of human history has not been defined that way. 
Part of the reason we have this sort of a process is because of the Reformers' biblical understanding of justice. So much of our legal system is built on principles taken directly from Scripture. And so we look at something like this and we say that makes perfect sense. But to the world at the time, this was not perfect sense. This was not the way they operated. It's a unique phenomenon in history. It's an incredible heritage that we have that so many of us have a tendency to lose sight of. I'm trying to get political, but as believers, we get to see this played out. And we have the opportunity to participate in this sort of a process taking place to see justice fulfilled, and yet when most of us get that letter being summoned for jury duty, are we like, yes, I've been waiting. I can help pursue justice in the culture that I live in. Now most of us go, I wonder if I can find a way to get out of that. This is a unique phenomenon that we have, and God prescribes it here to Israel because he doesn't want them to devolve into the sort of vindictive revenge killings that were surrounding them in the day. And so these following verses designate some cities for this refuge, for those that didn't intentionally kill someone. And you'll notice in verse 7 through 9 how they're organized by the western cities and the eastern cities. Remember we talked about those eastern cities in the Transjordan region and we talk about the western cities in the land. He keeps going back and forth to that. He starts off by designating the western cities. Look at verse 7. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. You probably can't see the actual names on this map, but you see the river that goes down the middle. That's the Jordan River. To the left is the Promised Land. To the right is those Transjordan tribes where they got their allotment of land. We talked about that last week. And these three cities, one clear up in Naphtali, one down by Ephraim, and then one down in Judah, are designated as cities of refuge. From there, he goes on and designates the eastern cities. Look at verse 8. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the Tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. And we read and we say, okay, that's very fascinating. Where are those? This is where these cities are. You want to flip to the eastern ones. Okay, so notice you have the northern one up in Manasseh. You have one in Gad there in the middle, and then you have one in the south in Reuben. And the whole design of this, God has designed so that anywhere that you are in Israel, you're about a day's journey from one of these cities so that refuge can be gotten to before the avenger of blood comes and kills you. This is infinitely practical stuff, right? If you have accidentally killed someone and you know you're supposed to flee to one of these cities, it wouldn't help if they were all in the northern part of the land. They're spread throughout the land. And these additional cities to the east of Jericho are exactly what God has allowed for in Deuteronomy chapter 19, which is why I had us read that. Then he summarizes everything that he's saying in verse 9. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. There's one additional note I want to make here in verse 9, which is fascinating to me. He includes, again, both the people of Israel and the stranger sojourning among them. It's fascinating that this sort of appropriate due process is available not just to the Israelites, but to anyone visiting within their land. You didn't have an Israelite, you didn't have to have an Israelite citizenship card in order to benefit 
from this because God is creating a culture that is intended to be unique and distinct from the cultures around them to prevent these sort of unjust deaths, this sort of blood for no reason, blood for the wrong reasons. Now, why is this so critical? Why does it matter so much to God that there be practical ways to prevent these sort of unjust killings in the home that he's created for his people? Flip back to the left again to Numbers chapter 35. There's a fascinating text here in Numbers 35 that we have to understand if we're going to understand why God prescribes this. We're just going to do this a couple more times, so keep your finger in Joshua and turn to Numbers 35. There's a fascinating line that God gives to his people in verses 33 and 34. After explaining the way this whole process should work, how the judgment will take place and the city of refuge is designated and all of that, at the end in verse 33, we read, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. You understand what the point is he's making here? He's saying this sort of injustice, this sort of murder that begets more murder that begets more murder is inappropriate for my people in my land if I am going to dwell among them. Injustice pollutes the land. When the innocent are killed and when the guilty go free, that is the sort of injustice that polluted the land and was the reason I kicked out the Canaanites. Saying this sort of injustice is not appropriate in my household. God says this sort of injustice is not appropriate in this land that I have placed you in. Because God is prescribing that justice be pursued among his people in his land. In their new God-given home, there must be justice both for the guilty and for the innocent. The innocent must be protected, the guilty must be judged. And I realize these feel like technical details, these feel like irrelevant practical aspects to many of us, but this is a critical component for us to see. This is what our distinction between manslaughter and murder comes from in our culture. The sort of recognition that not all murder is the same, not every time someone dies is it the same. So how are we to respond? If we recognize what he is saying here, that there has to be provision made for the accidental death of some, and there has to be judgment on those who have intentionally murdered others, what does this mean for us? How do we read a text like this? What significance should we draw out as New Testament saints? Because we don't live in this same sort of culture, do we not? What I found just a staggering reality to me as I read through this, this idea of avenger of blood and that blood needed to be spilled to ascribe for what had taken place. I was overwhelmed by the fact that in order to run to this city of refuge in Joshua 20, you had to be innocent. But for us to run to the refuge of Christ, it's because we're not innocent. Just think about that for a moment. Here, God's mercy, this provision is made for those that didn't intentionally commit this problem, this sin. But through Christ, the guilty are the ones that receive sanctuary. Through Christ, we are not limited to just if we didn't do it on purpose. 
Though our guilt isn't accidental, our sins are not unintentional, we still flee to Christ for protection. Though we aren't innocent of anything, we find protection and sanctuary in Christ. Though we don't deserve it, restoration is available through Christ. I was just staggered by that reality, that we're called to pursue justice, we are called to celebrate justice in our culture and in our world, and yet we are also reminded of our need for mercy. That refuge is available, that sanctuary is available, that protection is available through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Though all of us rightly stand accused. It's an incredible provision that we have. It ought to be something we celebrate and cherish in our New Testament moment. But the allotment isn't quite finished yet, because there remains one tribe that hasn't been mentioned. If you were with us last week, you know that all 11 of the 12 tribes were mentioned except for one tribe, the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi got left out. Now, finally here at this moment, the tribe of Levi comes back up, and God gives them a unique allegation of cities. And through that, I think we see that God places his priests among his people. We see this in verse or in chapter 21. Here the tribe of Levi finally speaks up. Look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, and they remember God's promise to them. When the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel, they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people gave Israel, or the people of Israel gave the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Again, this comes from previous commands in Numbers 18 and in Deuteronomy 18, where God has said the Israelites will, or the Levites will not receive a land allocation like the rest. Instead, they will be given these special cities. And they'll be given these cities in order to execute the role that I've given them to do. Now, I'm going to do a brief summary here of the first five books of the Old Testament here for you, because the roles of the Levites are explained in the first five books of the Old Testament. Let me just go through these here real quickly, and you could probably detail these out a little bit more if you did your own study, but these are some of the ones that I found. Here are the things that the Levites were called to do by God. They were called to be guardians of the tabernacle, literally soldiers defending the tabernacle from anyone that would try and draw too close in an unworthy way to God, and they were called to guard the table or the tabernacle to guard the temple eventually. In Numbers 3 and Numbers 18, they're also called God's redemptive possession. Remember how the firstborn sons in Egypt were all killed off? Well, instead of taking the firstborn sons of Israel, God says, I will take the tribe of Levi. I will set them apart for a specific task. And so they're supposed to be a pure offering to God. We see this as well in Numbers 8 and 18. We're there to be purified. They're to be set apart. They're to have a unique task specifically for God. From there, we see that they are additionally sacrificing servants of God. In Numbers 8 and 18, we see that this is the tribe that's supposed to carry about the sacrificial system, specifically the priests, but more generically, the tribe of Levi was supposed to facilitate that. And then in Deuteronomy 33, they were to be instructors of the law. They were to teach the people everything they needed to know about worshiping God. Now, why does this matter? Because God has set apart this tribe, this tribe of Levi, specifically to facilitate the worship of him in the promised land, to see that the rest of the Israelite tribes know how to worship God. 
And in order to do these tasks, the priests have to be provided for. So they're not just going to live off of imaginary sustenance. They're not going to just be able to get by without having something to provide for their needs. So God makes provision for them here in chapter 21. He says, there's going to be Levites. They have a specific task for me. They need to be provided for. And so he designates these, we'll learn, 48 cities for the sake of the Levites. And I just should say that functionally this isn't that different than Paul's words in 1 Timothy 5. When he tells Timothy that the laborer deserves his wages. That those who are teaching and preaching, those who are ministering before God on behalf of the people need to be provided for. This seems to go without saying to some degree. To do their job, both the Old Testament priests and New Testament ministers have to be provided for in some capacity. Now, if I go on that too long, you're all going to either fall asleep or get angry at me for talking about money. But you understand the point. This is practical. He's saying the Levites need some way to sustain themselves. Those that are going to teach and preach need some way to sustain themselves. And so he gives them this provision here in chapter 21. Now, from there, this larger section in the middle of chapter 21 designates these cities. And we're not going to read through all of these. But let me just read the generic description, the general description in verses 4 through 8 that he provides. He says, the lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron, the priests, received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, and from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh, in Bashan, 13 cities. The Merorites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. These cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel, gave by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now, don't get too lost in this. These interesting terms, we get a little confused. This is the names of the three sons of Levi. He says, the tribes of Levi, had, like Levi had three sons, and these are these distinctions. So he sets aside land for the priests, and then he gives each of Levi's sons unique distinctive lands. And if you add up all those cities, verse 5, or verse 4, 13 cities, plus verse 5, 10 cities, plus verse 6, 13 cities, plus verse 7, 12 cities, you get 48 cities. This is what they were to have. Now, I'm not going to read through the section in 9 through 40, because that's a long, drawn-out list of all of the names of the cities being listed off. But I want us to note just a couple of things. The first is, all of these cities of refuge are also cities of the Levites. So the six cities of refuge in chapter 20 are actually six of the 48 cities that are given over to the Levites. So that the Levites can instruct the people on what the law tells them to do when they run to these cities of refuge. Very practical. But in addition, the cities are within all of the tribes. Did you pick up on that? As we were reading through, all 12 or all 11 other tribes are mentioned here, right? Ephraim and Benjamin and Dan and Gad and Manasseh and all the other tribes are out of each tribe, cities are designated for the Levites. And those cities, their number of cities is actually proportional to the blessing that they have received from God in the land. It's really, really intriguing. God provides for these Levites through the generous proportional giving of his people. God says, I want you to give to them cities out of the blessing that I've already given you. Now, one more time, one last time, turn back to the left in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 35. 
One last time in Numbers 35. The reason for this is stressed in Numbers 35. Numbers 35, verses 6 through 8, stresses why this is so important. After saying these cities will be designated for the Levites, Moses then says this, The cities that you give the Levites shall be six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee, and in addition to these, you shall give them 42 cities. Right? Six plus 42 is 48. All the cities that you give the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. Now verse 8, and this is critical. And as for the cities that you shall give from your possession, the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits, shall give of its cities to the Levites. Pick up on that? That if a tribe is given a big allotment, more of their cities are going to be designated for the Levites. And if a tribe has been given a small allotment, fewer of their cities are going to be designated for the Levites. The provision for God's priests here, is proportional to the blessing that God has given his people. See how that might be relevant? Remember when we talked about 1 Corinthians 16 and the principles that God lays out for giving in his body within his people? This idea of proportional giving, that some will give a lot and some will give a living, and God blesses according to what he wants to do. But we're called, just like the, the, the parable of the ten talents, some are given few, some are given much, but God will require much of those he has given much. Same thing that we see here. The larger tribes give more cities to the Levites. And then he stresses the reason for the designation. Look at the last few verses of Joshua 21. In Joshua 21, verses 41 and 42, we are reminded of the reason that God sets apart the cities that he does. Joshua 21, verse 41, we read, The cities of the Levites... In the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture land around it. So it was with all these cities. And you're like, Brad, that's an editorial note. That's just like the end of the chapter. Well, did you pick up on there's an interesting term there. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel. God scatters the Levites, he scatters this tribe that's supposed to lead his people in worship throughout the land. And as a side note, I don't have time to go into this, this is a fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49. If you want to nerd out and read that this afternoon, that's fascinating. But to provide for his people and to aid the Levites in ministering to his people, God scatters them amongst his people. He puts them throughout the land so that they're available to remind his people of their priority and how they're supposed to worship God. He didn't want them all down in one corner so the people would be like, well, we can't get access to a Levite. We don't know what the law teaches us anyway. He puts them throughout the land so that the people will be around the Levites and will be able to get the instruction they need. God places his priests among his people in the land. Yeah, that's all well and good. That has nothing to do with the way we operate today, Brad. Think about it this way. In their new God-given home, there must be provision for the priests that lead them in worship so that the people we rightly taught in the word of God and the worship of him. God provides practically what they need so that they will worship him correctly in the promised land. And obviously that means practically supporting the Levites. That means practically supporting people, but finds even better fulfillment 
It finds an even better reality in the fact that we don't have all of the designated priests sitting amongst our church. And why is that? Because God in his providence has placed the word within us. He hasn't just scattered priests among us. He has actually placed the word in us. If you read Jeremiah 31 or if you read Hebrews 8, God promises that with the new covenant, he will put the law in our hearts. He will write the truth of his word on our hearts through the power of the Spirit. So we have one better than just priests among us. We have the word of God in our hearts. And in Christ, we have the word with us. The word incarnate, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 18, Christ writes, Where two or three are gathered together, there I am among them. So not only do we have the word in our hearts, we also have the perfect high priest among us as a people. It's even better than what they had here, where they had priests who were sometimes good and sometimes bad and sometimes teaching them appropriately and sometimes not. We have the great high priest in Christ promising to dwell in us and be among us. We need to be reminded of the significance of that. Read John 17 in Christ's high priestly prayer this afternoon where Jesus reminds his disciples that they are now in him and he is in them. Christ is the ultimate priest. He is in us and we are in him. How much better is that than God even giving priests for the people in the land? We have the great high priest that's closer than a brother. But these two unique allotments only support what God is doing throughout the, book of, the whole book of Joshua. As I mentioned earlier, God is establishing the foundation for his people ultimately to provide a home for his people. And we see this in these last few verses of chapter 21. And these verses in some ways function as a climax of the book. They are quite possibly the most encouraging in the entire book of Joshua, in my opinion. In verses 43 through 45, we are reminded of the incredible work that God has done on behalf of his people to provide them a home. In verses 43 and 44, we see three gifts that God has given his people. Look at this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Did you pick up on the three gifts that God has given his people here? God gives them a place to live in the promised land. He gives them a place to rest in this rest on every side. And he gives them a place of peace as he's given them absolute victory over their enemies. Think about how significant that would have been for the Israelites. This generation that had waited their entire lives for somewhere they belonged. They had spent their entire lives wandering around in the desert waiting for the moment that God would fulfill his promises. And they arrive home. God gives them this land, he gives them this rest, and he gives them this peace, and he says, you are now home. It would have felt like much like the only illustration I could think to try and capture the feeling is like after a long day or a long week where you're busy and you're engaged in activities and it's stressful and all that, you drive home, right, and you park your car in the garage and you sit down on the couch and you're like, ha. You know the feeling I'm talking about where you're like, I am finally in my safe place. 
I'm finally in kind of my sanctuary where I have, can rest and I can be secure and I can be not worried about all the stresses of outside life. Okay, only the introverts in the room have any idea what I'm talking about right now. But if you're an introvert, you know what I'm talking about, right? You arrive home and there's this... That's what's captured here. The Lord God gave Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. They took possession of it. They settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all the enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And he wraps up the fulfillment of his promise in verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now, if that's not a promise in the word of God that you can hang your hat on this morning, I don't know what is. God did everything he promised to do for these people. God fulfilled his promises to his people. He held up everything of his end of the bargain. Everything that he had promised to do for them, he did. Do you remember Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9? It says, be strong and courageous. Obey my word. Go into the land because I'm going with you. And everywhere your feet Run, everywhere you walk will be yours. I will do it all. And here in verse 45 of chapter 21, he did it. God was fully faithful to his promise for his people. They had had to wait seven years to see it accomplished. They had waited their entire lives up to that point, waiting on this promise, and here God did it. Remember our theme for the book of Joshua? How God fulfills his plans for his people by his power in his timing. Verse 45 announces that God has fulfilled his plans for his people in his power by his timing. It's an incredible climax to this book. This reminder that God is fully faithful. That if he has promised to do it, he will bring it about. And so God can call for proper worship, and he can call his people to pursue justice because he has provided them a home in the land. It's kind of like that moment, it's, at some point you, you grow up, right, and you begin to have a certain amount of conflict with your parents in your household, do you not? Right? You know, those that are 15, 16, 17, you probably know what I'm talking about. And you're starting to kind of launch out on your own, there's a certain degree of conflict, and at some point, if your parent hasn't said to you yet what they will say to you, is you can do whatever you want in your household someday, but as long as you live under my roof, you'll abide by my rules. It's inevitable. That's exactly what God is saying here. He's saying, I have provided you a home, I have provided you a place to live, I want you to abide by my rules. I want you to prioritize the worship of me and I want you to prioritize justice. And these are exactly the things that they're accused of failing to do later in the Old Testament. But I think this theme of home is really critical for us, even as New Testament saints. Because in some ways, we are today practically stuck in the middle of the book of Joshua. As New Testament states, we still await our ultimate home, do we not? This life is not our home. This world is not our home. We yet await the ultimate land. 
the new heavens and the new earth that God will supply one day. A place that will be our home forever. We await our perfect rest. Though we experience that in some degree in the rest we have in Christ, we wait yet for an eternity of spending time with Christ. And we await yet this sort of final victory. When Christ comes back, when he conquers his enemies and where he sets the record straight. And we long for the day when Christ comes back. Do you not read Revelation 22 and say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. In some ways we are stuck in the middle, knowing the promises of God, knowing what he has said he will do, but waiting for him to bring it about when he returns. And a story like this in Joshua 21 and 22 reminds us that if God has said he will do it, he's going to do it. He will be faithful. So we can rest looking forward to our final home with him one day. And until that day, just like Israel, God expects his people, he expects his household, his people, his church to pursue and celebrate justice. To prioritize instruction and guidance on worshiping him. In some ways, you could say that Joshua 20 and 21 are summarized in Micah's words in Micah 6.8. When God, writing through the prophet Micah to his people, years later says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's the point of Joshua 20 and 21. Because ultimately, when God creates a home for his people, he gets to decide how they operate within that home. And that's true for us today as well. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate the fact that this is not our home. That we are just temporarily here in this world. That we look forward to a future, that we look forward to a home, a rest with Christ, when you finally, once and for all, defeat all enemies that stand against you. Lord, help us to long for that day. And until you come back, help us to pursue justice, to pursue what is right in this world. Lord, to, to fight for it, to, to work for it, but to devote ourselves to the worship of you and to abiding with you until you come back. Father, help us to look forward to that future reality. In Christ's name, amen.